Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Heavenly Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, yes. Over the last few weeks, I've been riding my bike more and more every single day. The miles are adding up. And what started with small, short trips, one mile here, one mile back, three miles here, three miles back, five miles here, five miles back, I finally made it to a 15-miler before last Sunday's message, and I, I remember just kind of being wiped out, worn out, and, and just wondering, okay, well, this is a phenomenal time. It's, it's two hours spent in prayer. It's two hours spent with God, listening to music and listening to Scripture. And then this week, I did something even crazier than going 15 miles. I rode past all of the stops that I had previously ridden, and I went to the edge of oblivion, that line between Lapeer County and Oakland County. And that's as if I was going to leave existence itself on the trail, because you look out and you're sitting on the trail. It takes 10 miles to get there. And the trail changes from Oakland County, where it's relatively manicured and it's taken care of, and occasionally it's got uh, some pavement. And you look out into the Lapeer County Trail, and you're just kind of nervous that something's going to jump out at you, that, that, that there will be something that devours you along the path. And, and during this journey, I get to the edge, and I, I say to myself, I've traveled 10 miles today, and it took me about an hour to go 10 miles, and then I said, well, I've got, I've got a long journey back, so I think I'm not going to travel into the scary place with the overgrown brush, and instead I'm going to turn around and come home, and so maybe next week I'll travel longer than 20 miles, but this week I traveled 20, and it was interesting to me because all along the journey, there'd be, there'd be these signs, maybe every mile, maybe a little more, and they were diamond-shaped, and they were yellow, and the text was very clear on the sign. It said, caution, intersection ahead, and, and they were posted every so often on the trail because they desperately want you not to become roadkill, right? They, they are warning you, hey, just to let you know, you might have headphones on and you might not be able to hear the incoming traffic. You might have your eyes on the, on the road instead of up and looking. Don't get hit by a car, right? Because on the, on the trail itself, there's very clear yielding guidelines. If you're walking, you yield to a bicycle, if you're biking, there's only one thing you yield to, a horse, because horses are on the trail. But if you're on a horse or you're biking or you're walking, you should probably yield to a car if you want to be safe. So there's a, there's a degree where over these last few weeks and, and the time I've spent, the signs have been clear, caution intersection ahead. It's, it's been repeated over and over. About every five to ten minutes, I'd see the sign. And I'm wondering that in our text, as we look at Paul's final days, this is the, the penultimate chapter of the story. There's only one more week of our 31-week sermon series left. 
The sermon series that we started the first week of January comes to a conclusion next week. And one of the last things that it shows us is that there was similarly an intersection in Paul's life. When Jesus confronted Paul on that first road to Damascus, when he first called the apostle Paul to turn from his sin and to follow him and to proclaim the grace and love of Jesus everywhere, did Paul know what he was getting into? I don't think so. Right? Paul knew that Jesus was going to send him to every person in every place. Because God's grace is about every person in every place. Received, you and me, we receive God's grace in order to share God's grace. But I do not know and I do not think that Paul had an idea of what God was getting him into. You see, even in that first transition, in that first moment, God tells Ananias, who's going to Paul in that Damascus Road conversion, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for my name. Did you know that when God came to you to give you life and love and salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that you were signing up for suffering? That you weren't signing up for the comfortable life? That you weren't signing up for, for royalty and palaces and plush carpeting that's so thick you could sleep on it? No, Paul, Paul actually starts to get an idea of this, and he especially spells it out when he writes to the Romans. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says later in the same letter, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Are you suffering this morning? You might be. You might have a timeline in your life that you're wondering what God has in store. You're like, can I get through one more day with this diagnosis? Can I get through one more day with this debilitating disease? Can I get through one more day with this family member who struggles with me and alongside of me? Can I get through one more day? Even our hidden sufferings the ones that are under the surface, the ones that you really don't want to tell someone else in church this morning. You don't want to tell them the details. You want to turn to your neighbor and you want to ask, hey, how you doing? And you want your neighbor to say good because if they told you the truth and if they were vulnerable with you, it might mean that you have to be vulnerable with them. 
but this is what God has called us to as the body of Christ together, not to walk the road alone, not to travel into oblivion on our own, but to go with Jesus and to go with each other. Don't get comfortable. Paul certainly didn't. Paul would travel around the world three times. He knew very, very specifically it was about every person in every place, and so he went as far and as often as he could. But then there was one moment toward the end of his life when God kind of gave him his final assignment. And Acts 23 tells us the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now, Paul's a Roman citizen, and there's only one reason a Roman citizen would testify in Rome, and that would be if he was on trial. He had been on trial in Jerusalem. In fact, the text tells us in Acts 24 that Paul is giving his defense to all of the rulers that are present. He says, it's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. And they would confront him over and over, over the course of two years. They left Paul in prison for two years, virtually forgetting about him before he could finish his defense argument. Verse 25, or chapter 25, verse 8 tells us, Paul argued in his defense Neither against the laws of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Paul says, I'm innocent. I have done nothing wrong that you can try me of a crime. And so he declares publicly in front of the Jews, in front of the, of the Romans, I appeal to Caesar. And chapter 26 tells us, Agrippa said to Festus that this man could have been set free if Paul had not appealed to Caesar they were going to let him go but Paul knew what God had told him Paul knew what his mission was all about Paul knew that God said you will testify about me in Rome And he goes to Rome. Freedom was not part of God's plan for Paul at that point in his life. And so they set sail from Jerusalem to Rome. And Acts 26, 27, and 28 tell you all the trouble that Paul gets in along this journey. The ship that they're on shipwrecks onto an island. And they're trapped on the island. Paul gets bitten by a venomous cobra that the inhabitants of the island know will kill him, and he stands there unfazed, bitten, but still standing. And the people bow down and worship him as a god because they had never seen anyone bitten by that snake and live. Paul says, no, no, no. I'm not a God, I point to the God who defeats the greater snake. 
I'm not a God. There was another snake, a snake who deceived us in the garden, who stole life from us, who stole love from us. I point to the one who defeated that snake on the cross, who set us free from sin, death, and the devil. And then they make it all the way to Rome. And when they finally arrived, they said, Paul, welcome. You can stay here under guard. So for the rest of his life, he was in prison in Rome, in a house by himself, but with a soldier who guarded him. And he lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The kingdom of God. Paul preaches what Jesus teaches. Right? Because Jesus himself had said during the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you. Jesus is talking about not worrying about what we eat or what we drink or what we wear. He says, God knows you need these things, and he'll give them to you, but seek first his kingdom. Does your life preach what Jesus teaches? Paul's life did. From that moment of conversion on the road to Damascus to his final imprisonment in a house under guard in Rome, Paul was telling people about the kingdom of God and the grace that is given. The kingdom of God. It's something we pray in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. We will pray it together. We will pray, thy kingdom come. This past week, I, ha I had an opportunity to dive into the large catechism, the, the part that Martin Luther writes that's too long to give to, to every child, and so we keep that in reserve for when they ask more questions. It's not part of the regular confirmation class. And, and so I was diving in, and Martin Luther says some amazing things about the kingdom of God in the large catechism, and I wanted to share those with you this morning. Luther says, just as God's name is holy in itself, yet we pray that it may be holy among us so that his kingdom comes of itself without our prayer. And yet we pray that it may come to us, that is, that it may prevail among us and with us, that it would be number one in our lives, right? That the kingdom of God would be the first focus when we wake up in the morning and when we go to sleep at night to think about how we can proclaim what God does and how he reigns. From heaven above to earth below, he comes to share, us our, share his grace. And Luther continues, he says, so that we may be a part of those among whom his name is hallowed and his kingdom flourishes. Luther asks, what's the kingdom of God? Simply what we've heard in the creed, that God sent his son, Christ our Lord, into the world to redeem and deliver us from the power of the devil, to bring us to himself 
and to rule us as a king of righteousness, life and salvation against sin, death, and an evil conscience. He says to this end, he delivers to us the Holy Spirit through his holy, holy word to enlighten and strengthen us in faith by his power. And so we ask at the outset that all of this may be realized in us and that his name might be praised through God's holy word and through our holy living. This we ask both in order that we who have accepted it may remain faithful and grow daily in it, but also so that it may find approval and gain followers among other people and advance with power throughout the world. Did you know that this morning as we gather, one in two people living in Oakland County are sleeping in this morning. They're going to brunch. They're having a coffee. They don't come to church here. They don't come to church anywhere or worship anything. You have a coin toss of a chance of talking to someone this morning, this afternoon, or this evening that doesn't know or doesn't care about the love and grace of God. And that's why we pray thy kingdom come, so that they would. In this way, many people, Luther says, led by the Holy Spirit, may come into the kingdom of grace. They may become partakers of redemption so that we may all remain eternally together in this kingdom that has now begun. Right? He says the kingdom of God takes place in two ways. First, it comes here, right now, in time. The kingdom of God reigns through the forgiveness of sins that he gives us, through the bread and the wine and the body and the blood of Jesus that he shares with us in his meal. And second, Luther says it comes in eternity. When all of our sin and all of our pain and all of our suffering is taken away and thrown away. And when we pray thy kingdom come, Luther says we ask for both of these things. That it may come now to those who are not yet in it. To those who are outside, to those who don't know Jesus. And also that it may come to those who have attained it. To you and me so that it would change our lives completely. Luther says all of this is to say nothing more than, Dear Father, we ask you first to give us your word so that the gospel may be properly preached throughout the world and then that it also may be received in faith and may work and dwell in us so that your kingdom may pervade among us through the word and the power of the Holy Spirit and that the devil's kingdom may be destroyed so that he would have no right and no power over us until finally his kingdom is eradicated and sin and death and hell wiped out forever so that we might live in perfect righteousness and blessedness. Luther says, we're not asking for breadcrumbs here. Right? We're not asking for the crumbs that fall off of our master's plate. We're not asking for something temporary. We're not asking for something that will disappear or perish. We're asking for an eternal, priceless treasure. And we're asking God for everything that he possesses. And the truth, 
The truth is, Luther says it would be far too great for any human heart to desire this prayer if God himself had not commanded us to ask for it. When the disciples were sitting at Jesus' feet and they begged Jesus, teach us how to pray, this is how he told them to pray. Pray for everything. Because he is God. Because he is God, he claims the honor of being able to give us what we ask far more abundantly, far more liberally than any of us can comprehend, Luther says. Like an eternal, inexhaustible fountain which gushes forth and overflows. And the more God gives, the more he has to give. It never stops. And he desires nothing more from us than we ask many and great things from him. And this convicts me. Because last night as I was laying down to pray, I think I prayed for, for something simple and basic. Like, Lord, let me have a good night's sleep. But that's step one. And that's not a bad prayer to pray. He desires nothing more from us than that we would ask many and great things of, from him all the time. Right? On the contrary, Luther says he would be angered if we did not ask and demand with confidence. We can confidently step to God because he asked us to. Now, Luther says, imagine if the richest and most powerful emperor in the world commanded a poor beggar to ask whatever he might desire, and the poor beggar asked for nothing but a cup of broth. You see, the ruler was prepared to give lavish royal gifts, and so he would consider the, the beggar a rogue and a scoundrel. He who made such a mockery of the imperial majesty's command. Just so, Luther says, it's a great reproach and a dishonor to God if we, to whom he offers and pledges so many inexpressible blessings, despise or lack confidence that we shall receive them and that we would scarcely venture to ask him for a morsel of bread. Luther says the fault lies wholly in our shameful unbelief that does not look to God even to satisfy our bellies, let alone without doubt to expect eternal blessings from God. He says, therefore, we must strengthen ourselves against unbelief. And we must let the kingdom of God be the first thing for which we pray. Then surely we shall have all the other things in abundance. And Luther goes back to the teaching from Matthew 6 where Christ says, Seek first the kingdom of God in his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. This is exactly what Paul writes while he was bound in prison, chained for preaching the resurrection of the dead, when Paul says in Ephesians 3, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more 
than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We are praying for immeasurably more. But there is a danger. Like those diamond signs warning me every step of the trip Caution, intersection ahead. So also it is true with you and what you ask for. How will you pray? And what will you say when God demands that you speak? May you pray what he has taught you. Thy kingdom come. Amen.